0: Once again, welcome to Harvest. We're so glad that you're here today worshiping with us. And uh, once again, Merry Christmas. Um, We love, love, love getting to celebrate Christmas this time of year together. So um, we're going to dive into God's word this morning as we worship him through the study of his word. Grab your Bibles. We're going to Acts chapter uh, 9 this morning. And um, we've been working our way through this book of Acts. We're in this section now on faith and what's it look like for us to have faith uh, through the Holy Spirit that actually manifests itself in our lives in a way that changes us and changes everything around us and changes everyone around us. And that's what we're going to be pressing into today and maybe what might be a familiar story to many of you. Um, So I wanted to start with kind of a current event kind of thing. I got a picture here for you. Go ahead and throw that up there. Anybody know who this guy is? You guys know this dude, Kanye West? So he's kind of made a stir lately in uh, in the culture and in the media a little bit. He's um, come to profess faith in Jesus Christ. And um, he's been having these Sunday services, he's, been having, he's released a gospel album just in the last couple of weeks called Jesus is King, and uh, it seems to be kind of moving in that direction, but it's creating a lot of conversation around, is this real, right? So you got some people on one camp that are waving the flag, victory flag, of man, look at this great cultural win for Christianity, and this guy's coming to Jesus, and then you have some on the other side that are saying, well, I don't know if this is real, like, it doesn't seem genuine, yada, yada, yada. So that's the question at the crux of it. Is it real? Is this genuine faith that Kanye has found? And the answer is, we don't know. I don't know. You don't know. God knows. Kanye knows. We don't know. Um, Time will tell if if his faith is true based on the fruit of his life. But that's true for all of us, right? Like, our faith is substantiated by the fact that God comes and he starts changing us from the inside out and our lives show change over time. But I think one of the reasons that people are so skeptical about Kanye's newfound faith is because they look at his past, they look at his career, they look at his words, they look at all these events and these things that have happened and they're like, I, I just don't see it, right? I mean, this is the guy who pride has kind of been his mantra his entire career, like self-proclaimed greatest artist of all time. Um, that kind of puts you in a space where people, yeah, kind of question some things. He released an album a couple years ago called Jesus, uh, which is the, his name and Jesus kind of blended together into one. Um, uh, several years back, he actually posed on the cover of Rolling Stone as the crucified Christ. Um, and so, you know, you put all that together with some of his music where he's basically made a career celebrating sin for the last, you know, however many years, um, people are like, I just, I don't know if, if, if that kind of person can really come to Christ. Like, I don't know if, if Jesus can really save, he kind of seems like he's too far gone for this whole thing. But what we're going to see in the scriptures today is that no one is too far gone for Jesus to save them. not Kanye. Not Saul of Tarsus, not you, not me. There's nothing you can do. There's not, there's not a hole you can dig deep enough that puts you outside of the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see today how God changes people even in the most dark and deep circumstances. But I would actually even challenge today that it's not even just that. If we look at Kanye's life and we kind of even press back further, um, I think he's been wrestling with Jesus for a while. One of his earliest hits was called Jesus Walks. And if you listen to the lyrics, if you look at the lyrics of that song, he's already starting to wrestle with like, who is Jesus and how do I interact with this and how does that affect my life? And I think we can see evidence in Kanye's, I think we can see evidence in Saul's life today in chapter nine of Acts, that once you encounter Jesus, he already starts changing you whether you believe or not. Because you have to do something with who he says he is. And it starts to change us. It changes everyone that comes in encounter with it long before we actually even believe. And so what I want you to see in chapter 9 today is this, that Jesus can change anyone and does change everyone. Jesus can change anyone and he does change everyone who comes in contact with him one way or another. Let me see if I can show you that from the text today. Look at chapter 9, verse 1, starts like this. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Let's just pause there. First major point today is this. Jesus chooses sinners like me. Jesus chooses sinners like me. So the story starts off here with this guy named Saul. Um, we know from context of the Bible and other writings of the time, that this was Saul of Tarsus, all right? Saul of Tarsus was a highly educated Jewish uh, Pharisee. He had been brought up in this religion. He was rising to the top very quickly. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jewish faith at this time. And he was very, very zealous for his faith. Right? to the point where uh, we see a couple chapters ago in chapter 7, we saw that he was present at the stoning of Stephen, right, staying there, giving approval to it and, and being uh, witness of it. And then right after that, he launches a major offensive persecution against the church in Jerusalem, so much that they start to scatter out of the city to other regions. So that's where we pick it up here. And Saul, it says, is breathing threats and murder... Against the disciples, I think it's really interesting the idiom that Luke uses there that breathing think about that for a second he was breathing threats this points to the idea that his attacks his threats on Christianity were so easy and and so continuous and so natural as it's as if he was just breathing All right like this was heavy incessant type of persecution, so much so it says he was breathing threats and murder, which brings us to an interesting point here for just a second. It's a little side note, but I think it's important that we address it. If we're going to call ourselves Christians and say that we're really about truth, then we need to speak that way, I believe. And maybe you've heard throughout the years, Saul, later called Paul, um, said that, you know, well, Saul was a murderer. Anybody ever heard that before? So let's, let's look at the text for a second. It said he was breathing out threats and murder. We know he was present at Stephen's murder, but it doesn't seem like he cast a stone. He was standing there observing, right? So maybe he's an accessory to murder in that instance. Here he's breathing out threats of murder. So he's he's saying, "I, I wish, I hope, my heart's desire is that Christianity would die off, that it would be finished, these people would be gone. But we actually don't have anywhere in the Bible that it actually says Paul or Saul murdered anyone nor do we have any other historical records outside of the Bible that say that Saul ever physically murdered someone. And so I think we need to be careful what we say sometimes, because if we want to claim that we believe and our faith is based on the truth and the veracity of this book, we might need to stick to that pretty closely, right? Amen? We agree with that? But let's not take away from who Saul was. Luke is making a distinct point that he is the top rebel, the top enemy against Jesus with a heart to kill the Christian faith. All right, so it doesn't take anything away from the uh, the level of uh, darkness and, and persecution that Paul is walking in here. It says he's breathing out threats and murder against the disciples, against the specific group of people that's following Jesus. In fact, it says here that they're also called the way. Sometimes throughout Acts, you'll see them called the way, because they were following the way of Jesus. And so he's so set on killing this religion and shutting these people down. It says he went to the high priest and he asked for letters so that he could go to other cities where the people have fled to, to find them, arrest them, and drag them back to Jerusalem to throw them in jail. He's not satisfied with simply squashing Christianity and the Christian faith in Jerusalem. He wants to take it out all across the board. He is relentless in his pursuit and in his persecution. He hates Jesus and his followers. Let's just be very clear, right? This is who we're dealing with. And the reason I think this is true of Saul is because long before Jesus saved Saul, he had already changed Saul. You see, when you come face to face with who Jesus is, when you are confronted with the gospel, there is no middle ground anymore. You have to choose one side or the other, right? You either believe in and embrace Jesus, or you become an opponent of Jesus. You become one who rejects who he says he is and what he did. There is no middle ground, even if it's subconscious, even if you're not like trying to, like it changes people. And Saul, when he was confronted with Jesus in the reality of Christianity in Jerusalem, it flipped something in his heart, and he became an opponent of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus changes everyone, one way or another. So he's, on, he's got the letters, and it says he's approaching Damascus. So So picture this, him and his guys are walking on this road to this other city. They're getting close to Damascus. And so right as Saul is in the act of actively opposing God, we're about to see next that Jesus is going to step right into that. This is great evidence of God's amazing grace and unparalleled patience with us as sinners. He pursues us and he saves sinners long before we ever choose to follow him. He came after Saul at the heart, at the the prime of his persecution against the church. You know, I think the, the longer you're a Christian, the longer you're in church, sometimes it's easy for us to forget where we came from who we were before Jesus stepped in and saved us, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like if you've been a Christian for five or 10 years or more, like it's, it's easy sometimes to forget what life was like before Christ. But let me tell you, I've heard most of your stories. And in this very church, in this very room, we have prior drug addicts, we have adulterers, we have liars and felons and alcoholics and fornicators, abusers, thieves, gossips, cheats, the list could go on. That's us. That's me and you. That's the people God chooses is that list. Because that's the list he can show his greatest grace and strength and majesty in. When you save people like that, man, that's a good God. And we really shouldn't be surprised by this because this has been the story from the very beginning. Like you can go back in the Bible and read all the so-called heroes of the faith, right? You start with Adam, the very first guy. What's he do? His very first sin, it was the wife, right? Blame shifter from the very beginning. You have Noah who was drunk. You have Abraham and Sarah who tried to swap spouses multiple times. Isaac was a deceiver. Rebecca was a manipulator. Jacob was a pathological liar. Rachel was a thief. Moses, a murderer. Samson, a womanizer. David was an adulterer and a murderer. That's all Old Testament, okay. In the New Testament, Peter denied Jesus three times at the height of his persecution. And here we see Saul, who comes to become Paul and plants the majority of the churches in that region of the world, is persecuting Jesus Christ. See, no one comes to God clean. None of us come to him with a perfect slate. We don't come as good people who just need a little extra help. God chooses to save the worst of us to show the greatness of his glory. We need to remember that when we look at others around us who don't know Jesus yet. That coworker, that neighbor, that family member that you just can't stand that just constantly like, we can't ignore them we can't write them off we can't think that they're too far gone because of whatever no no that's the kind of person that Jesus loves to save and we need to love it too remember every person God has ever saved started as a sinner including me including you. Every person that has ever become a member of the family of God started as a sinner who was separated from him until God stepped in and saved them. That's Saul. Let's look at the rest of his story. It says in verse 3, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Point number two today is this. Jesus challenges sinners like me. So how should we respond to Saul's experience, to Saul's story of conversion? I think this is a big, like, when you come to a passage like this in the Bible where it's it's a story that happened to a single person, like, how does that apply to the rest of us? Is that really like, was that just his experience? Or is this like, I've even heard people say before, you know, like, I never had, a, you know, I love Jesus, but I never had a big, dramatic, you know, Damascus Road kind of experience. I like they even use that term, like the Damascus Road. Like, that wasn't my experience. And for sure, there's some things about Saul's experience here that are unique. Can we just agree on that, right? Like, the, the voice and the light and the blind, like, there's some unique things here happening to Saul, for sure. But if we press past that, if we dig underneath that and we see the basic components of Saul's conversion story, I think they're actually the same for all of us. It's the same thing that happens to all of us. Maybe a different facade on the top, but the basic components are the same. And so I want to show you here five challenges of coming to Jesus. Five things that Jesus takes every person through in order for them to come to faith, true saving faith in who he is. Number one, it starts off, He says, a light shone down from heaven and he heard a voice. So these are, these are two signs of divine revelation, right? This is God breaking into the story, the light and the voice. Like clearly God is doing something here, which is the first challenge of coming to Jesus is that Jesus pursues sinners. What we were just talking about in point one. He doesn't come for good people. He comes for broken, sinful people, Right? Here he is pursuing Saul in the midst of his sinfulness, and this challenges our identity. When you first come face-to-face with Jesus and he shows you that you're a sinner, that rubs against everything that you think you are prior to that. Right? Because you're like, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. Like, I'm not as bad as Bill over here. Like, he, you know, like, like I, I think I'm good until Jesus shows me, no, I'm a sinner. And that challenges the identity at the core of my being. And I have to come to grips with that. God here is pursuing and confronting Saul and his sin. And, and the light that shines down, I think, is reminiscent of the idea that God is light. It says that in the scripture in other places. That when God comes into our lives, he exposes darkness. He exposes sin. He exposes evil. He shows us who we truly are. Sinners. That's our identity before Jesus. And then the voice speaks and it's says, Saul, Saul. And it repeats there for emphasis. It's like this emotional, like, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's Jesus speaking here, we find out later in the passage. And so by saying, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is identifying himself with his church, right? When you persecute them, You're persecuting me. Which is the second thing, the second challenge. Jesus calls out sin. He doesn't just pursue sinners. He calls out my particular, specific sin. Which is a challenge to my character. He starts to show me... Because a lot of times, prior to understanding Jesus and sin, we think, well, I'm not really a sinner. I'm not really a a liar. I just lie occasionally. You know who you know what we call people who lie? Liars, right? Like, like we, we never assign our sin to our character. We assign it to circumstances, right? Like I'm not like that. I just did that in that instance because so-and-so did this or this happened or we're like, like we don't think about sin being part of our, who we are prior to Jesus. We write it off as circumstantial. But when Jesus shows us the reality of our sin, we see, no, no, this is a much deeper character issue in my heart and in my life. These aren't just isolated incidents. So then Saul responds, and he says, well, who are you, Lord? Which is kind of a confusing question, Like, you just called him Lord. So he's acknowledging this is God speaking to me. Like, I, I know that the voice and the light, like, obviously this is God speaking, but he's like, who are you, God? Like, I, I thought I knew who you were. I thought I was serving you. I thought I was, you know, doing your will by knocking out Christianity. So, so who are you? He says, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Which, again, takes it to a whole other level, right? Like before it was, when you persecute the church, you're persecuting Jesus. Okay, I can probably handle that because I don't like Jesus either. But now Jesus is saying that he is God. So that means if I'm persecuting the church, I'm persecuting Jesus. It means I'm persecuting God which was not what Saul wanted. Which is the third thing, the third challenge that we see is that Jesus reveals that he is God. At some point, when you come face to face with Christ, this is the question that you ultimately have to wrestle with, is that Jesus claims that he is God in the flesh, which challenges our understanding prior to coming to the realization that Jesus is God, we think we have it all figured out, right? We think we understand how the world works, who we are, who God is, how like we have an understanding that we are functioning in a paradigm in which we are walking. And once the reality of the truth comes in, that man, like Jesus is God, that changes everything. Like if that is true, which is what Christmas is all about, God coming to live in the flesh. If that is true, then that changes everything I understand about myself and about the world and about God, about faith. So he challenges our understanding. And then he gives him this instruction. He says, rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Now, We've already established, he believes now that this is God speaking to him. So this is now a sovereign command from God saying, do this. You want to honor me? You want to follow me? You want to serve me? Then do this. Obey what I'm telling you. Go into the city and I will give you further instructions. You're either going to submit to God or you're not, which is the third challenge, or sorry, the fourth challenge. Jesus calls for submission." You can't just like Jesus. You can't just like, you know, it's not like Facebook where you just like thumbs up Jesus. Like this isn't, like you have to submit to him as Lord and King. It's a direct challenge to our pride. There comes a point where I have to agree with what he says that I'm not in charge of my life. I'm not on the throne. I'm not King. He is. That's Submission. And that's what he's asking Saul to do here. And then lastly, it says Saul got up and he went in. His eyes were opened, but he saw nothing. He is now blind. It says it went for three days. Picture this the proud, powerful persecutor of the church now has to be led into Damascus like a little child by the hand because he's blind and pitiful and weak. Think that changed his perspective a little bit? He's so devastated and beside himself that he doesn't eat or drink for three days. Like he's just trying to process everything that's happening. This is what happens when God drops a boulder on your life you know what I'm talking about? Right? Like you're walking around thinking everything's great, thinking I'm awesome, thinking my life is, is, is going exactly how I want it, and all of a sudden just boom, something just falls right on top of you. Could be a sin. Could be your sin. Could be somebody else's sin. Could be a health thing. Could be a financial thing. But some boulder just drops and crushes you under the weight of it. And all of a sudden you are very aware of your weakness and your inability to push that boulder off and get back up and keep going. Saul is sitting, laying underneath the weight of a boulder that's just been dropped on his physical and spiritual life. His whole world just got rocked by God, which is the fifth challenge. Jesus exposes our weakness. In order to show us that we need him, He has to show us how weak we really are. He has to challenge our self-sufficiency. Our natural bent is, I got this, right? I can handle it, whatever it is. I'll make a plan. I'll do the thing. I'll work harder. I, I can do this for myself. That's how we function naturally. But most of us, I think, have been in this life long enough to know that that eventually hits a wall there eventually comes something that I can't handle, something I can't do, something that's not going to make it just because I try harder or do better or make more money or whatever it is. That's when you hit the boulder and God shows you that you need. You see, the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ only makes sense. It only makes sense if we are broken and weak, and needing to be saved from sin. If I'm not, if I don't need that, then why do I need the gospel? Why do I need Jesus? I don't. The gospel only makes sense if there is a need. As humans, we are born into this life as sinners. We're sinful by nature. We're sinful by choice. We have hearts that desire to run after sinful things and then we follow those desires and we have behaviors and actions and words that are indeed sinful. And that sin is what separates us from a holy and perfect God. And once we understand that and we're laying under the boulder of sin and brokenness, that we can't move, it becomes clear to us that this sin problem that's separating us from God, we can't fix it. There's nothing I can do to earn my way back. There's nothing I can do to make it right. There's nothing I can do to fix me. And God knew the same thing. And so he chose to send his son to come and to be born as a baby in a manger On Christmas, not actually on Christmas, but you know what I'm saying, that's when we celebrate it. So he comes, he's born in a manger, as a human, flesh and bones, just like us. And then he went on to live a perfect, sinless life. Something that is so far beyond our imagination that I think sometimes I can say that phrase over and over again, and we just kind of gloss like, okay, yeah. He did what we could never do. The only human to ever do this was Jesus. And then he chose at the end of his life to go to the cross and to die a sinner's death, to allow himself to be crucified for the sin of those who put him there. He gave his life as a sacrifice, as a substitute for us in our place for our sin. And he took God's wrath and punishment on himself and he died and he was buried. And then three days later, he rose back to life. He said, look, I am who I said I am. I am God in the flesh. Nobody else could do this. I'm back and I'm here to show you I have conquered sin. I have conquered death and you can have freedom. You can be set free from the brokenness of this world if you will come and put your faith and your trust and your hope in me. And he offers that to anyone who believe. And he calls us through these challenges to show us you need this. This is your only option to be made right with God, to have a life with him for all of eternity. Saul thought the opposite. Before he met Jesus, he thought he had it all figured out. He thought he was at the top of the religious pyramid. He thought him and God were tight, like, he thought he was nailing it until Jesus confronted him with a sin and his need for the gospel that made it good news. Um, our house, in our house, we don't have cable in our house. Um, not because we think cable's of the devil. If you have cable, that's great. Like, it's, it's cool. Um, we just... We, we, we never had it early on in our marriage. We kind of just got used to not having it. Back then it was because we didn't have the money to have it. Now it's just because, you know, there's better things like Netflix and Hulu and whatever else. Right? So, but before all of that, before Netflix and Hulu and Prime and all that kind of jazz, I remember one time Courtney got a phone call from a telemarketer to this, you know, well-known cable company that was selling cable packages. And so he, he launches into a spiel, right? Like, this is just the, the most awesome deal ever. Like, you're not going to find anything better. Like, all these channels and da-da-da-da. And, and like, and l- let me just, let me hook you up right now with this deal. And so when he finally breathed, so Courtney could say something, um, she says, well, well actually, we don't, we don't have cable and we don't really want cable. And he was like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean you don't have cable? Like, you don't? Everybody needs cable. Like this is like, like this is the best thing you're gonna get. Like you need to sign up for this. And 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 he was, she was like, No, we don't need cable, and we don't want cable. And then he started, he kept going. He had to hang up on him because he was like, he he was so flabbergasted that there was a single family in the United States that didn't have cable. Like he couldn't, like he couldn't, he could not comprehend that. And in his mind, because he believed Every one of us needed that. He thought the deal he was offering was the best deal of all time. But that deal didn't mean squat to us because we didn't need it. We didn't see our need for what he was offering. The same is the true with the gospel. The gospel is not good news until you understand that you need it. Otherwise, it's just another bill of goods somebody's trying to sell you. But let me tell you today, I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm trying to offer you a free gift. But guess what? It only looks like a good gift when you come face to face with Jesus and he shows you that you need it. Then it becomes the greatest gift you will ever find. Saul is starting to see that he needs it that there's a problem that needs fixing, and this is the answer. Remember, the gospel is only good news if I am a sinner who needs saving. We got to keep this in mind. When we're sharing our faith with our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors, we can't go, you know, charging in with this sales pitch like, you got to do this. If they don't see the need, they don't get it yet. We have to walk with them in life and remember that until... Jesus confronts them with their sin and they see their need for the gospel, they're not ready yet. And we need to love them and we need to walk with them and we need to talk with them and we need to be there for them for the day, which will come when God drops a boulder on their life. And all of a sudden they realize they need him. That's it. That's right there. And then we're right next to them as we're going to see in the next part of this story. So look at verse 10. How much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So he's like, are you, are you sure about this, guy? Like, I've heard about this guy. Verse 15. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. He regained his sight, and he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. Last point today is this. Jesus changes sinners like me. starts with this disciple named Ananias. Now, this is a different Ananias than the one a couple chapters ago that died, okay? God doesn't use ghosts to do evangelism. He uses people, okay? It's a different Ananias. So, but before Ananias was a disciple, you gotta remember this, before he was the, 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 the disciple who went and ministered to Saul, he was a sinner, just like you, just like me, before we came to Jesus. Like, this is the kind of people that God uses people who used to be messed up, that he saves, he changes them, and then he uses them and sends them to others to help them be changed as well. If we really believe that Jesus can save anyone and change anyone, we need to stop seeing people in our lives as lost sinners and see them as future disciples. So Ananias says, he goes, God calls out to me. He's like, all right, here I am, Lord. I'm listening. What do you want? I'll do whatever you want. And God says, all right, good, rise and go. And then gives him like some very specific instructions. You're like, this is even like better than Google, right? He's like, go to Straight Street, Judas' house, go in. You're going to find Saul. He's going to be praying. He's already, oh, by the way, he's already had a vision that you're coming and you're going to lay your hands on him and you're going to heal him. God, did you just tell me to go and help and heal the Christian hunter? Like, is that really what we're doing right now? Like, Ananias is not so sure that this is going to go well. And so he, he kind of pushes back. He's like, but, but Lord... Which is, which is always an oxymoron, by the way. Okay, like anytime you say, but Lord, like that's just a bad play. So he's like, but Lord, like I've heard of him. He's done evil to your saints. He, he has the authority to arrest us. Like this is, are you sure this is the right guy? Surely not this guy. God, surely he is beyond saving, right? And, and by the way, this is gonna put me in some danger too. Like, I don't know that this is, I'm really on board for this. But the Lord said, go. I know what I'm doing. He's going to be my chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Jews, the Gentiles, and the kings. That part, the chosen instrument part, is true of every single person that God saves. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are a chosen instrument of the Lord. You might not plant churches like Saul did, but he's chosen you for something. He's chosen you for the mission of taking his name and his gospel and his glory to somebody, somewhere, sometime, somehow. He chooses us for mission. And he says, not only is he my chosen instrument, that he will suffer for my name's sake. Just another reminder that nowhere does the Bible promise an easy, safe, comfortable life for Christians. So let's just be really clear. I don't want to I don't want you jumping on today on a false pretense. Like this is not what the Bible tells us. What God promises us is mission. That we are chosen instruments that will be used for his mission to bring more people to his glory. He says, I've got a plan for Saul. Go. So Ananias went, and Ananias went, and he entered and he laid his hands on him. And then don't miss this little part right here. He calls him what? He calls him brother Saul. That's good. He comes in with such grace and love and calls this enemy of God brother. He's calling him into the family. He's like, listen, man, it's all good. I know you've been on a bad path, but now you're going to be a brother. This is what Jesus does. He changes sinners into saints. He changes enemies into family. He did it for you. He did it for me. He wants to do it for all those other people in your life that don't know him yet. He says, Jesus who appeared to you, he sent me. So the same guy who dropped the boulder on your life, he sent me to help you with that. All right, like I'm here to help you with the boulder thing. Which I think is a super important question for all of us who are followers of Christ. Who in your life is crushed by a boulder right now? Who in your sphere of influence has God dropped a boulder on their life and they are looking for help and you haven't? You know what it is. You're already holding on to the hope and the help that they need. And God is sending you to them to help them roll the boulder off and to find Jesus. He says, I've come to help you regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's going to help him physically, but he's also going to help him spiritually. Both are important. He says, as he prayed for him, scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Jesus changed how he saw physically, but Jesus also changed how he saw spiritually, right? The scales are, are a symbol of how Paul's perspective is changing when it comes to God and to Christ. And it says that he rose and he was baptized. I mean, he put his faith in Jesus and he went forward. Jesus changed not only what he saw, but also what he believed about life. And then he finally took some food and was strengthened. Because now he has hope again. Right for three days he was like, I don't know, what, I don't know what's happening. I'm... But now he has hope again in Jesus Christ. He's walking in faith, and just like that, Saul's transformed from enemy of God to son of God. It happens just like that. His life, his story is the illustration. It's the picture of the truth of this passage. I don't need to give you another story. This is the story. This is the proof. Remember, Jesus is changing you and everyone around you. Right now, even if you're a follower of Christ already, he's still working. Jesus is changing you with the gospel and he wants to change everyone around you. All they need to do is meet him. All they have to do is have that encounter. And once they meet Jesus, there's no escaping the change. Because Jesus can change anyone and does change everyone. So what's that mean for you? What's, how does that apply to your life? What is your part in all of this? Two things. Number one, if you're already a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you need to be an Ananias. Like God is sending you to someone who has a boulder on their life so you can help them and come alongside them and love them with Jesus. So who is that for you? If you're not yet a disciple of Jesus, consider how Jesus has or is Changing you right now. Because he is. For good or for bad, right? Is he just by the fact that you're hearing this today is telling me that Jesus is speaking to you and he is changing you in some way. Like, what is he saying to you? Is he revealing some sin in your life? Is he revealing himself to you in the midst of a tough situation? Is he calling you to submit and depend on him? you're meeting Jesus, he's going to change you. The question is, how will you change? Will you change to hate him and oppose him like Saul did at the beginning? Or will you change to love and embrace him like Saul did at the end? How you change is your choice, but change is unavoidable because Jesus can change anyone and he does change everyone. In fact, I would tell you by personal experience and by the power of God's word that Jesus changes everything. Will you stand with me? Let's pray. We're just gonna sing a song of response this morning. If you have any questions about anything I said today, if you wanna talk more about faith, talk more about Jesus, man, please grab me or one of our leaders. We would love to do that. Well, let's just pray right now and just ask the Lord to continue to change us and to change everyone around us for the good of his name. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, thank you for stories like Saul's. Lord, this shows us the truth of of who you are and what you're doing Lord, thank you for sending your son to earth to rescue us from sin, to rescue us from death. Thank you for changing our hearts and changing our minds to know you and to love you. Thank you for restoring our relationship with you through Jesus. Lord, for those today who do not yet believe, Lord, give them faith. Give them faith to trust in you today. For those who already believe, Give them faith to tell others, to step out, and to love and to share the truth with those who are in need. God, thank you for loving sinners like us. Thank you for saving sinners like us. Lord, thank you for changing everything in our lives. I pray all of this in Christ's name.